Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. So here at Harvest, we are teaching through one of the books of the New Testament called Hebrews. And this morning, before we look into our passage, which is Hebrews 2, 5 to 9, I'd like you to consider this statement, true or false. The world is not how it is supposed to be. The world that we live in now, the world is not how it is supposed to be. Would you take just a minute or two to discuss that with someone right around you? True or false, the world is not how it's supposed to be. Take a minute or two. Okay. I don't know what you said. There are a lot of different ways I'm sure you could go with an open-ended statement like that. I think if I were in those one of one of those groups, I would have said that that's true. I think people living in Texas today would say that, where uh, yesterday a gunman shot up a, a mall. And eight or nine people died. I don't think the world is the way it's supposed to be. I don't think parents should be afraid to send their kids to school for fear that uh, an intruder is going to come in and harm them. Worldwide, over 800 million people, they say, go to bed hungry every night. That's about a tenth of the world's population. In 2021, the suicide rate in the U.S. rose to become the 11th leading cause of death and the second cause of death for those who are between the ages of 10 and 34. A CDC survey found nearly one in three teenage girls who said they had contemplated taking their own life. Racial tensions have not appeared, disappeared in our society. I, I don't, I don't usually watch the local news on TV. That's not how I get my news, but on the rare occasion that I might turn it on for a minute or two, it's seems like it's story after story of bad news, <laughs> robberies and murders and scandals. The world is not how it's supposed to be. Now, our passage for today, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 9, can help us understand a little bit about why it's that way. In fact, maybe a lot about why it's that way. And, more importantly, can give us hope. So let's began reading in verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 2. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind 
that you are mindful of them, a son of man, that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now, the way we're going to approach this this morning is I want to share with you three reasons why this particular passage is important. Now, the, the first, the one that I'm not going to mention, the one that we're assuming is that it's part of the Word of God, and so every passage in the Word of God is important. That's a, that's an understood, okay? Every passage is important. But what is unique about this passage? What, what things does this passage accomplish? What did God put it here for? So the first one is it helps us understand the flow of the argument of Hebrews, beginning in verse 5, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. The Jewish people believe that angels helped administer God's world. But what is meant by the, the world to come? We, when we read that, we tend to think, oh, it's something that hasn't happened yet. But it's, it's very similar to, to a phrase that's already been used in Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 2, the last days. It's the new world order that began with Christ, that it began to be inaugurated, the, the era of salvation. And so what the writer is saying here is that this, really for us now, this present world and what is going to come afterwards, God didn't subject that to angels. Angels are not going to rule over that. It's going to be someone else. Now, you may have noticed that I used a different translation uh, this time. That's from the ESV because it starts with the word for, as does the original text in Greek. Now, there are many English translations that don't start with the word for. It doesn't mean that they're a bad translation or they're wrong. They often try to capture the flavor of a word like that in, in other ways. I just like the the way the ESV does it here. I think it's the most understandable. It's the most uh, accurate to helping us understand the flow. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you come to a word like for, you want to stop and pause for a minute. And you want to say, what is this? What is this grounding? What is this proving? Now, most of the time, you don't have to look far in your text. You can usually look right back at the very verse that preceded it or the, ver- the, the couple of verses that might have come right. That's usually what happens. But in this case, I, th- I think it's a little bit different. I think it goes a little further back into chapter 1. And let me, let me put on the screen uh, uh, a, a picture of the way that I see Hebrews flowing and what this passage is doing with it. So in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, 
which we just started like three weeks ago in this series, we talked about the sun being God's final authoritative word. And it was this big, beautiful, amazing statement about the son of God. And then specifically in verses 5 to 14, the writer of Hebrews compared Jesus to angels, showing that Jesus was greater than angels, far superior to angels. And one of the main reasons he was doing that is because he was going to drive something home in chapter 2. But there were, there were a lot of great, great verses in that section including this one, chapter 1, verse 13, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's a quotation from Psalm 110. And this is Psalm 110 where it's about the enthronement of the Messiah. So in other words, angels do a lot of good things for God. They do a lot of good things in the world, but none of them were ever given the name son, None of them were eternal like God, and none of them are ruling over the world like Jesus is. To which of the angels did God ever say that? So this is the way Hebrews is flowing. The son, Jesus, is God's final word, and he is superior to the angels. And then last Sunday, we saw the first warning based on what he had said so far. And the warning was pay attention (laughs) because in the old Testament, if the old Testament came with a lot of warnings and punishments and you needed to pay attention to what it said and it was mediated by angels, how much more do you need to pay attention to what the son says that is in the new Testament? But that's, it's not a parenthesis. Because it's, he built from chapter one into chapter two, but it's parenthetical in this sense. Now he's going to keep going with the same argument that he started in chapter one. So now beginning in chapter two, verses five, we get more reasons why Jesus is superior to the angels. We got a lot of them in chapter one, but now we're going to get even more of them. And that's why I think that little word, F-O-R, is important. For. So he's looking back, not, I don't think, at the warning that he just gave. I think he's looking back at his statement that Jesus is ruling. Well, what does it mean that he's ruling? What does it mean that he's enthroned? What does it mean that the angels are not enthroned, but he is? He is going to elaborate on it. And you see, I have... Uh, 2, 5 to 9, and then in parentheses, verse 18. It's really going to go all the way from verse 5 to chapter 18. More reasons. In fact, Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll cover three more reasons why Jesus is superior to the angels. But today, we're just going to get the first one, and that is because he is ruler. That's what verses 5 to 9 is about. He is the ruler. So there's this shift of sorts Chapter one, if you imagine, we're looking at Jesus and we're like, we're looking up at his divinity. We're looking at his greatness, his eternality. He's, he's just almost inconceivable. He's God's final word. You come to chapter two and the same 
person, the same being, is still fully God. But now we're going to look at his humanity. We're going to look at how he, the step, or the steps that he took in the process of living as a human being and how that resulted in the glory and honor that's his. So chapter one is mainly about his divinity and chapter two is now about his humanity. But remember, it's a both and. He always was God. He always existed as God. He always existed as equal to God in the Trinity. And yet when he came down to the earth, we call that the incarnation. In those years, he became fully human. He was as human as you and I. He got tired like we get tired. He was tempted like we're tempted. He had to eat to sustain his nourishment. He was capable of relationship. He was human. But there was one difference between us and him. He obviously did not have a sinful nature. But he was still fully God. So fully God and fully human. And that really is God's word for us this morning. This is the main point of Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. Jesus is greater than the angels because he's a ruler. He is ruler. They are not rulers. He is a ruler. That's the first reason why this passage is important. It helps us understand the flow and the argument of Hebrews. Now, the second reason it's important is it helps us understand biblical theology about dominion lost and regained. And this is very, very important. Let's read again verses 6 through 9. It's an interesting way that he quotes the Old Testament here. (laughs) He doesn't say David said or the Old Testament said or as it is written. He says there's a place where someone has testified. Well, he knew where it was. And they knew where it was. It's he's just putting the focus on the actual words. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for them. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. Now, in the course of this, we we see the word mankind. And I'll say mankind, but I might say humanity and or mankind. Or I might even say man. If I do that, I'm not talking about males versus females. I'm talking about all of us as humanity, right? All right, so with that qualification, we have to ask the question, where did somebody say this? (laughs) This is Psalm 8. So in your Bibles, I want us to go back to Psalm 8. We got got to look at Psalm 8 so we can understand what Psalm 8 meant when it was originally written. And now, how this writer of Hebrews is taking Psalm 8 and, and what he's doing with it. So... You'll see this on your outline. You've got Genesis 1 to 3, which I'll explain where that comes in in a minute. You've got Psalm 8 and you've got Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 is quoting Psalm 8. So let's, let's read Psalm 8. 
Psalm 8 opens by contrasting God's majesty and humans' insignificance. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against our enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them? It's said that when President Theodore Roosevelt, who was known to love nature, would entertain diplomatic guests at the White House, he liked to take them after dinner as it was getting dark. He liked to take them out onto the back lawn of the White House. And in those days, there weren't as many uh, city lights in Washington as there are now. And he liked to just gaze up into the heavens and gaze into the sky and stand there for a minute. And the guest would stand there with him just looking into the heavens and Roosevelt, would, after a little bit, would say, I think we're small enough now. Let's go to bed. God is majestic. But we as human beings are fragile, and we don't stay on the planet as long as, or, or compared to the age of the planet. But God remembers us, and he takes care of us. And, and, and what is... Hum, what are human beings? That's, the writer's just like spouting out this, this praise of God and how majestic he is. And, and in compared to that and all of these incredible things in the universe, what, what, what are, what are, what's man? But then in the psalm, he turns to show the responsibility and the dignity that God has given to humanity, verse 5, you have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. These verses are lifting up humanity because that's the way God created us. God created humans as having dominion over all of the, the animal life in the world and the systems of the world. Animals are not equal to human beings. <laughs> It's kind of crazy in our society that sometimes animals are given more uh, rights to live than human beings. It's very sad. So humans are exalted by God, but we're, we're still less than the angels. So we're not divine. We're not gods. We're not little gods. But we are 
created in the image of God with great dignity and great responsibility. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. So we are set apart from the animals and we are given the responsibility to rule over them. So what's happening here is Psalm 8. So Hebrews 2 is looking back to Psalm 8. But Psalm 8 is like a commentary on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We're trying to understand how the the Bible fits together here now. So Psalm 8 is given this, this commentary. So if you're drawing your arrows on your sheet, you're drawing from... Hebrews back to Psalm 8. Now now draw the arrow back from Psalm 8 to, to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Because that is describing what happened. And we would start in Genesis 1. This is where God gave human beings dominion. Right from the beginning when he created Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. In the creation account, God said... Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish in the seas and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. Our culture needs that verse, doesn't it? (laughs) God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Wow, what an awesome privilege and responsibility God gave human beings when he created Adam and Eve and there was going to be rule and dominion over everything, that was when dominion was given. But if you go over into chapter 3, you find out that that dominion was lost. Adam was given a job, and he failed. Genesis chapter 3, let's, we know that he sinned. We know Adam and Eve sinned. We know there was a choice to disobey God. God said you can eat out of all of these wonderful things to eat except for this one. And that's the one that they chose to eat. And so as a result of choosing to disobey, they lost the dominion to Adam. Look what God specifically said to Adam. Because... You listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you. You must not eat it, eat it, eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam was given dominion. But because of sin, dominion was lost. And so when we ask that question at the very beginning, is the world the way it's supposed to be? No, it's not the way it's supposed to be. 
because there are a lot of effects of sin that we are still feeling today because we live in a sinful, broken world. Sometimes God, people blame God for every wrong thing in our world, but God is a God who is good and his rule is good. Well, I'm about to get ahead of myself, so I'm going to stop right there. I'll come back to that in a minute. Notice that dominion was given. It was lost, but it was also regained. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. The them in verse 7 relates to humankind. Psalm 8 is about the first Adam. Hebrews 2 is about the person that Paul, the apostle, will call the last Adam. Jesus is called the last Adam. God gave Adam rule and dominion. It kind of presents Adam as a king. As God's ruler over the earth and it extends to humanity. But now Hebrews 2 is showing how though this Adam failed, the first one, somebody else came along and regained what was lost. So it says a little lower than the angels. Now, what does it mean? Adam and Eve and all of us as human beings are a little lower than the angels and He's quoting it in Hebrews 2 of Jesus. So are we lower than the angels in the same way Jesus was lower than the angels? And fortunately, the actual phrase, a little lower than the angels, has a couple of different ways, uh, a couple of different meanings. And the first one is a small measure or distance. So you're a little bit lower in substance, just a little lower. And that's what it meant in Genesis. And in Psalm, Psalm 8, human beings are lower than the angels. We are created in the image of God. We have a lot of authority, dominion over the earth, but we're not the same as angels, right? Now, when you, it can also mean a small amount of time. So you would translate it for a little while, and that's what is meant when it refers to Jesus. Jesus is not lower than the angels in substance. He was lower than the angels for a little while. All right, follow with me. In eternity, Jesus is God and existing as God. And then when he chose to come to this earth for those 33 years, for a little while, he became lower than the angels. Why? Because though he was fully God, he was at the same time man. Are, are you with me? Shake your head to, sh to show me that you're still alive. Because I know this is, I mean, this is deep and we're flowing in here. But it, it is important for us to understand. A little lower for a little while than the angels. This is part of the mystery of the incarnation. And I think the writer is assuming that the readers know Genesis 3. They know about this, this dominion that's lost. Now, when we get to verse 9, we learn more about how the dominion was regained. But we do see Jesus. 
But we do see Jesus. We perceive Jesus. That This seeing is not a physical seeing. It's a spiritual perception. We understand who Jesus is. And what, what did this Jesus do? Well, he was made a little lower for a while, lower than the angels. But now he's crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What does Jesus' death have to do with Adam's losing the dominion of the world that God gave him. Here's the inference. By his death, Jesus won back what Adam lost. Adam was given an incredible opportunity to rule over the world, but humanity blew it and sinned. And rebelled against God and therefore the dominion was lost and now the world was thrown into chaos and nothing is ultimately right about the world. I don't think if Adam had not sinned that we would have things like cancer and murder and hatred. Right? The world is not all right But this gives us one of the reasons for the incarnation. Adam failed, but Christ succeeded. Now, we don't see Jesus full of glory and honor right now in in all the fullness that it entails, right? And he's not literally ruling on the throne of the universe because the world is all messed up. But there is going to be a day... (laughs) When that's going to happen. So what this means is this was legitimately true, but there's this thing in the Bible, this way of looking at things already slash not yet. Some things are already true, but they're not yet completely fulfilled. Jesus, when he preached, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. John the Baptist said, repent, the kingdom of God is near. In other words, the kingdom of God was there Jesus was beginning his rule in people's lives, but it's not until the very, very end that he is going to fully establish his kingdom. So if we had room on our chart, which we don't have room to add anything on our chart, but if we had room, we'd add another word, dominion realized. (laughs) And we would go to a passage like 1 Corinthians 15 that's going to quote a verse that you'll be familiar with. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. It's talking about the resurrection of Jesus and what it accomplished. And verse 22 says, As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ the firstfruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father... After he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for, quote, he has put everything under his feet. In that day, in the end, 
that is when the dominion will be fully realized. So let me remind us where we are. (laughs) We're looking at three reasons why Hebrews 2 is important. First of all, it helps us understand the flow of Hebrews. But secondly, it helps us understand this biblical theology about how dominion was lost and regained. There's one more thing, one more reason why this is important, and that is it helps us appreciate the person and the work of Christ. But we do see Jesus. When we look at it, you can look at the world and be discouraged. You can look at the world and see the brokenness and the fallenness and the wars and the hatred and the poverty and the uncertainty. You can see all of that and you can say, wow, is there any hope? And the answer is yes, you have to look in the right place. We do see Jesus. So one commentator, Raymond Brown, talks about when Jesus came and took on humanity, took on a human nature, he took on our frustrated, suffering, and threatened humanity. Think about it. If we're humans, there's going to be frustration, there's going to be suffering, and we're going to be threatened. Frustration. In spite of the dignity that God designed man to have, as seen in Psalm 8, mankind is not what we are intended to be. We have disobeyed God and the image of God has been marred. We have despised God's favor and as a result, we are limited in what God designed us to do and be. Suffering, to be human, is to suffer. Suffering is a part of human existence. There was no suffering for Christ in heaven, but he knew when he came to earth and became human, he would suffer and threatened human beings, all of us, our whole life. We may not think about it. Sometimes we think about it. Most of the time we don't think about it, but we're threatened with death. From the time we start living, there's always this danger that our life is going to end. But verse 9 says that Jesus himself suffered death, and he tasted death for everyone. So Jesus took on our fallen human nature without taking on the characteristics of our sinful nature. That's who Jesus is. That's his person. That's what Jesus has done. That's his work. So... Raymond Brown's conclusion is spot on. Let me just read this. With the aid of Psalm 8, the writer wants to emphasize not only that Jesus fully entered our humanity, but more especially that he is the ideal man. He is man as God really intended him to be. Man is certainly not remotely like the ideal humanity portrayed by the psalmist, but Jesus has come into the world to show us what man is like in God's original purpose and what man can be through God's work. Do you see how Genesis and Psalm and Hebrews work together now? He created us for this in Genesis. We failed Psalm 8, exalted God and talked about how wonderful it was, but but the dominion was lost. Who's going to save us? Who's going to help us? Who's going to rescue us? 
the one who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, Jesus. Jesus is greater than the angels because he's ruler. It's an unexpected glory. We think of a ruler marching in on a big horse with soldiers. But he, his rule was a rule that came through the path of suffering as a human as well. So if you want to think about how to apply this today, I, I think here's just a couple of phrases that you could reflect on this week. And you could fill in the blank yourself. Because God created us in his image and gave us such an exalted position, how do you respond? Because God created us in his image and gave us an exalted position, how do you respond to that? How does that engender a certain lifestyle for you? How does that engender worship in you? And then secondly, because Jesus died to win back for us what we lost. How do you respond to that? That's what this passage is all about. I want to close with the words of a former baseball player, former member of the Boston Red Sox, Bernie Carbo. Some of you might remember that name. Any of you... Old enough of baseball fans to remember the name Bernie Carbo? Okay, just, just a couple who are willing to admit it. These are his words. I stood in the batter's box awaiting the next pitch. It was game six of the World Series. My team, the Boston Red Sox, trailed the Cincinnati Reds by three runs in the eighth inning. And we needed to win this game to stay alive. I was sweating bullets with two men on base. I could even the score on a single swing. I took a swing and watched as the ball sailed over the center field wall, a home run. You might imagine that hitting a clutch home run in a crucial World Series contest would be the defining moment of my life. The truth, however, is that I was totally miserable. I was addicted to drugs. I'd even used some before the game. I spent the next few years bouncing around from team to team until I finally washed out of the big leagues altogether. I was only 32 and my career was over. Over the next eight years, I continued to use drugs. My wife and I bought a home in Florida hoping to settle down. But for both of us, the drugs continued to flow. Finally, I told my wife we needed to slow down, but she refused and filed for divorce. I continued using other drugs and abusing alcohol. After a second marriage and divorce, he met a former, he says, I met a former major leaguer, Dalton Jones, who told me about Jesus and explained the difference that Jesus could make in a life as troubled as mine. I prayed that day, and I believe Jesus began to work within my heart. Even so, I persisted in using drugs to the point of losing all hope. Sitting in my home, I was ready to take my own life. I felt like I had tried everything, and I was worthless. After suffering a panic attack, I was sent to a hospital where I met a retired pastor. 
The pastor spoke with me about the Bible and he taught me about Jesus and how true healing could happen if I would trust in him. I grew in my understanding of what it means to live for Christ every day and to rely on him for forgiveness and strength. In 1994, I had one final relapse which plunged me into a sea of guilt and despair. And then I met Tammy, the woman who would become my wife. She reminded me about Jesus and the atonement for sins through his death on the cross. And I believed once more that his blood was sufficient to cover all my transgressions and that we can depend on him for the grace we need to overcome the strongholds of addiction or any other habitual sin. We've now been married for 26 years and I've been clean the whole time. I want others to know that there is hope. There is a way out of the deadly seduction of abusing drugs. Not only does Jesus Christ offer the way out, but he offers the way into a life more joyful and abundant than anyone could imagine. Truly, our God is an awesome God. Jesus tasted death. For everyone. That's why we celebrate him today. And whether it's a drug addiction or some other addiction or some kind of relational struggle you have or whatever the brokenness in your world is, today is a great day to say, but we See Jesus. It's a day to look at Him. It's a day to focus on Him and who He is and how powerful He is. Yes, our world is messy and broken. And our lives are often messy and broken. But thank God that He Regained for us what Adam lost. And that's what we're going to do as we close this service. We're going to take elements that remind us of that. We're going to take bread that reminds us of his broken body. And we're going to take cups that remind us of the blood that he spilled. We bow your heads, please. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.